I'd like us to take a look back. We're just going to jump right into the text. Have a look. Uh, keep your Bibles open or your phones, whatever it ca- case may be. And I'd like to have a look at verses 19 and 21. Read through those again. It's the rich man and Lazarus. And then after you read through it again, I'd like you to share with your neighbor which person you identify with. So we're in chapter 16, and I'd like you to have another look at verses 19 and 21 just as we begin. Luke. Luke. Sorry about that. Luke 16. So as you just approach the the story, do you identify with one of those two men? You may not because you're a woman, but I get it. Um, But if you could, as you imagine yourself in that situation, and then share with whom you identify with your neighbor. Y'all are really spread out. Yeah, we can't take that bit out of the Bible. That's the whole problem with the Bible. Can't take anything out of it. Remember, no dot or... Uh huh. All right, so how many for a rich man? How many for Lazarus? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, how many neither? Any, any for both? Yeah. How many don't want to choose? Oh, yeah, because you might be getting in a trap if you choose. (laughs) Especially if a speaker is asking you from the front to choose something, right? (laughs) All right, let, let let me go back to verse 13, because this is why Jesus is telling the parable. So if you wouldn't mind, um, Spill, to uh, put that up for us. Um, so Jesus, in the, pri- in the previous section, has just finished this long teaching directed at the Pharisees, and then he's going to continue to direct some things at the Pharisees. And so in verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so in response to that, the Pharisees are scoffing, ridiculing, they're they're laughing. Uh, And it says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that is, Jesus. So I'll I'll say a few things about the Pharisees in a moment, because this is the the primary focus of this parable. But let me just remind you where where we are in the context. In chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. So 
And in the original language of the text, it's it's set his face like flint, like there's no turning this way or that way. He is going to Jerusalem, and he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be beaten, and then he is, is going to die. And along that journey, there are, I, I want to just remind us of three primary themes that are happening as Jesus makes the journey. So uh, first of all, Jesus is coaching his disciples along the way. He gives them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to teach. And he does that in chapter 9 and verse and uh, chapter 10 as well. So the 12 at first and then the 70 later. So, so Jesus is saying, you know, I, I, I'm, in, I'm inviting you to be in this kingdom ministry and um, I'm going to give you the stuff that, you know, you get to do the stuff of the kingdom ministry, and then along the way he coaches them. So you'll notice that as the, as the text continues, there's this interplay of the crowds and then the disciples, and sometimes it's, it's speaking to the disciples in the midst of the crowds, sometimes it's just with the disciples. But there's this, this uh, instruction and there's this coaching that's going on. And then um, secondly... Jesus and Luke reveal a lot of the kingdom of God type. Oh, Naomi, I love your amens. Um, a lot of. Oh, Emma Jen, I'm so sorry. You are awesome. You kind of sound similar. Um, so uh, along the way, Jesus is doing all of these kingdom of God interventions, healings, miracles, deliverance, and some quite profound teaching raising of the dead, and so on. So, and, and sometimes he'll stop and give some conversation about that, and sometimes he won't. So that's the second theme. We've got the disciples, and they're coaching, and they're learning, because, you know, it's the last days of Jesus' life. And then we've got kingdom of God interventions happening. And then, thirdly, we have this, constant and increasing conflict with the uh, Pharisees. And check it out. I mean, read Luke chapter 5 verses to where we are right now and into chapter 17. It's just on and on and on and on with the Pharisees. Uh, There's tons of interaction with them and lots and lots of conflict. Now, um, some of you are movie makers, producers, editors, and directors, and you know that a good story always has conflict. And that is what Luke reveals for us, this amazing story with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and it's over and over and over again. And here are some of the examples of the conflicts. Uh, They're unhappy with what Jesus does or does not do. So, uh, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, unhappy with that. Forgives sins, unhappy with that, because only God can forgive sins. Um, Jesus does not do the hand-washing ceremony before a meal, not happy with that. Uh, Jesus actually, at different points along the way, speaks directly to the Pharisees. Uh, if you'll remember, we, we worked through the parable of the Samaritan along the road. And, and who's the good neighbor? Well, 
uh, the priests and the therapy, uh, therapies. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Uh-huh. Ah. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. <laughs> uh, are not good neighbors because they don't stop and help someone who needs help. And, I mean, he says all kinds of things to them, like clean the inside of your hearts by giving to the poor, uh, chapter 11, verse uh, 39. You're careful to tithe the tiniest herb, but ignore the justice and love of God. Chapter 11, verse 42. You crush people with unbearable religious demands. Again, chapter 11, verse 46. And you prevent others from entering the kingdom of God. Again, chapter 11, verse 52. So there's this very intense and climatic conflict that is happening with the leaders of the religion of the day. Sometimes Jesus speaks directly to them. Sometimes they just have a problem with what he does or doesn't do. And then they have a big problem also with who he hangs out with or who he dines with. He he dines with sinners and tax collectors and women. My Lord. So basically everything that Jesus does, the Pharisees and teachers of the law have a problem with. Everything he says, everything he does, he doesn't do it in the right way, he doesn't do it at the right time. Um, And they can't even see the good things that are happening. So... Obviously, the second and third themes, the you know, the first and the second themes, the the you know the keen, the uh, uh, the interventions and what Jesus does and when he does it and his teaching of the disciples, those two themes um, obviously feed onto the conflict with the Pharisees. So almost everything is putting Jesus in conflict with them. And the Pharisees, we know, become jealous of Jesus' popularity, um, and they're—I mean—they're just unhappy with everything. And that's where we pick up the text. So this this climax of conflict is is increasing almost chapter by chapter by the time we get to this point. And then Jesus says in Luke chapter sixteen, verse fourteen. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, before humans, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among humans is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, the phrase, lovers of money, is kind of an interesting phrase. It kind of makes sense, because we do know from other parts of the uh, the text, especially in Luke, that the Pharisees wanted the right seats at the banquets, and and we know um, socially, culturally, that the more money you had, the more rights it gave you to have relationship with certain people. So that was all uh, exercise, and so so this is not surprising. But interestingly, in the in the Hellenistic Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world, lovers of money was actually kind of a catchphrase to mean 
false teacher or false prophet. And so basically what Jesus is saying to them is, you are false teachers. Oh, it doesn't really win friends and influence people, right? Um, you know, So you can kind of see how this conflict is going to continue to build. So you are false teachers and you are false prophets. And then Jesus kind of weaves in a, a few examples of why that is. So, so the first example is because you, you care about what humans say rather than what God says, or, or rather than what God says that you should be doing as the religious leaders, which is basically uh, helping people to uh, not idolize things uh, like money or clothes or uh, certain relationships, and um, you should be taking care of the poor. And then he goes on to even give, and, and he basically says also in verse 15 that this, this loving of uh, money, this idolatry, because they're idolatrizing by, I don't even know if that's a word actually, um, by their examples, they're, um, it's an abomination to God because it's idolatry. And then Jesus actually gives an example. He, he says, okay, let me just put this in context. The law and the prophets was really important and still is, and up until the time of John, and uh, nothing can pass away from the law and the prophets. So that's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying, I have a new interpretation of this. And he gives an example, which is, is around the issue of divorce. Now, I guess at that time, and um, even because of some of Moses' commands, um, which were taken out of context, uh, a man could actually divorce his wife quite easily, just give a certificate of divorce and send her on his way, her way. And what Jesus is saying in this context is like, no, this is, this is what is meant by the certificate of divorce. And I'm going to reinterpret it, and it's much more difficult now than it used to be. So he gives that example, and then he goes on to this parable. So, yes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, supposed to interpret the law, great, but they're not doing it right. And here's an example of this, and their motivations are entirely off kilter. So we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid, and, and I, I like how the original language uses this. It's, it's actually tossed. At his gate was tossed a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So, what do we know about the rich man? He's dressed in linens and purple cloth. So, so what he's dressed in is important. Linens, uh, they, I mean, I, I don't know how niggly you want to get with details. Uh, I, I find it interesting. I might be kind of geeky with this sort of Bible stuff, but um, linens, actually to make linen from wool and on into, uh, had to, it, it, it 
had to go through numerable processes of washing with certain types of clay in order to become white. So the idea is that this guy is wearing this white linen beautiful cloth underneath a purple cloth. Purple, um, so first of all, you get the cloth to the point where it's white, and then you get the cloth to the point where it's purple. So, And the purple dyeing is extremely expensive. So he's, you know, he's got these amazing clothes on. I don't know. What are our clothes today? I'm so bad at this stuff. Um, anyway, uh, Gucci or, you know, whatever. He's, he's wearing the, like, the best of the best, and he's wearing two layers of it, the most expensive clothes. He feasts uh, sumptuously each day, and and the idea, you know, whenever the word feast is used, it's not just like sort of hang out, like let's have dinner together. It's kill the calf. It's have the best wine. It's have the best foods. It, and so everything of the best is happening on a daily basis, and that's the, the consumption that's happening. Now, of course, uh, folks in the sociocultural context would assume that this man is blessed by God because this is the way that he's living his life. I mean, so obviously he must be doing something right because he can live this way, because God has given him all of these riches. And he controls his world and everyone who is related to his world. What do we know about Lazarus? His name means God is my helper, so notice that the man, the rich man is not named. Notice the poor man is named. I mean, kind of seems, you know, obvious, but that's kind of big and uh, repetitively named in the passage. He has a name, and it's repeated, and the name is God is my helper. He was tossed at this gate, now, and, and he stayed there, so there's kind of an assumption that he must be paralyzed. He, he can't move from that place. And he has sores all over his body. So, you know, harken back, Old Testament, sores on the body, bad. Right? Sores on the body, unclean. You don't get to be a part of the community. You don't get to pray. You can't go to the temple. So you are this abandoned shell of a man outside the gate of this rich person, hoping that you'll get some scraps. Now, that wasn't an unreasonable hope, because scraps were thrown from the table every day from, the tab- from, from everyone's table. So they're just kind of thrown out, and the dogs would stop by and pick it up, and, and you know, whatever animal would get it. So that's kind of how refuse and garbage collecting happened in those days. And it was pretty easy because they didn't use plastic and things like napkins. And, and in fact, napkins were actually the bread that they, they ate with. And so they would, they would use bread as a napkin, and then all of that would get thrown into the street. So that's what Lazarus is, is eating on a daily basis. Unable to move. Unable to change his circumstances. And not only that, has a rich person who really doesn't give a damn, evidently. 
In the passage, there are two intersections of the rich man and Lazarus. So there's the intersection at the gate, where Lazarus is virtually ignored, except by the dogs. That's not a positive thing, by the way. The dogs are licking his sores. You know that, right? It's not nice dogs, like, ooh, taking care of Lazarus. It's, like, really bad, making the sores worse. And then the second intersection is in Hades. So Hades, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Hades, in the the Jewish framework, is the place of the dead. And it's not necessarily the place of, you know, some people go to the place of dead and some people don't go to the place of dead. It's everyone goes to the place of dead. And there is sort of this sense of, a disembodied soul, so not necessarily, you know, there's no resurrection in Hades, but it's this place where people are hanging out. And you know, you know who they are, because in this passage, you, you, you know that there's Abraham, and in other passages, Moses and Elijah, um, but uh, it's not necessarily an embodied place. But there's feasting. I mean, it's kind of weird. I mean, we don't really have it in our theology too much. So it's a place of the dead. There's a sense in which you can kind of see who's there and what's going on. And there's a sense in which you can see what's happening to people as well. Uh, Picking it up in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out. Notice to whom he addresses his. This is just, like, amazing to me. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this place. So the rich man is still kind of doing his command and control and ordering Abraham. That seems kind of intense to me. Uh, you know, uh, ordering the, you know, <coughs> the, the most talked about person of faith in the Bible, uh, telling Abraham to tell Lazarus to do something. And uh, then Abraham says, you know, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and in, and Lazarus and in a manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may come across from here to us. And then the wretched man says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, again, still in command and control. Send him, Lazarus, this poor man. So he, you know, he still doesn't have it. He still is in control. Send him um, to my five brothers so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Now, Remember who Jesus is speaking to here, the Pharisees, right? So 
Maybe the rich man is not named because the Pharisees are the rich man. Maybe the five brothers are not named because the Pharisees are still hanging out and there's still an opportunity for them to listen to the prophets and Moses. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. Hello, hear from them. And he said, no. You can hear from the prophets and Moses. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Already happened in Jesus' ministry. Someone rising from the dead. Already the Pharisees had tried to kill men who had been risen from the dead from Jesus. So what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? I don't know. I I found this text just intensely demanding. I think it was just my own uh, kind of blockage with it. Um, So first of all, I didn't really find it that easy to find myself in the in the passage. You know, as the I'm not really that rich, although by (laughs) certainly here what I'm saying here certainly by the world's standards I'm I'm intensely rich. Um, I, and I do like sumptuous food. I happen to be a foodie, uh, and I love good wine. <laughs> That's another issue. Um, I know, but I don't know. I, I didn't totally identify with this guy, you know, because anyway, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, and I wasn't particularly comfortable with this whole Hades thing, um, and thinking of myself in Hades, I, I sort of found myself um, judgmental towards the rich guy. Like, oh, right, he's getting what he is due because he didn't take care of the poor. And, you know, he didn't have compassion and mercy and um, generosity. And I found myself a little self-justifying because, you know, I kind of view myself as pretty generous, I mean, you know, reasonably so. Reasonably so. Ah, then the Lord had me. That selfish, self-justifying, yeah, but. I mean, I found myself approaching the story to see how I stack up against the Pharisees and the rich man. It's kind of where I went. Because, obviously, I I don't want to end up in Hades, like in some torment land, and, you know, and then I want to be dining at Abraham's table. Resting against his bosom is what the the original text says. And then here it is. 
as if I had anything to do with that. That's the kicker. I like to follow the rules and stay in control and be in control. And I am utterly uncomfortable with Lazarus's helplessness. What did that guy do? Just laying by the gate in his sores, hopefully getting a morsel every now and again. I am utterly uncomfortable with helplessness. I'm utterly uncomfortable with my own helplessness. I mean, I, I kind of think, well, surely, I, you know, God must be showing something about Lazarus here, right? What did he do? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I am uncomfortable with my own helplessness, aren't you? Aren't you? I've had a few uh, encounters with helplessness in these last weeks, pretty, pretty significant. Um, friends' cancer, finances, 14-year-old niece's mental illness, death, my own depression, again, cycling back, Again. And you know what? I, I think that I still think that if I just do the right stuff, if I just do the right stuff, it's going to be better. It's going to be better with me and God because he's horribly silent. It's going to be better uh, in certain relationships. It's gonna, I'm going to give my brother and sister-in-law just the right advice. So Lakin doesn't have to be checked into a mental facility. Um, if I just do the thing, right thing with my own cycles of depression and mental illness, um, you know, it'll get better. Something will happen. Therapy, antidepressants, exercise, eating right. Well, it may not. I'm, I am utterly helpless to this thing. And I think that that is kind of where God wants us to get to in this passage somehow. Our own helplessness, physically, spiritually, mentally, social, and economically. Um, because God knows Lazarus did nothing to sit beside Abraham and have a great meal in Hades. He didn't have the social connections. He didn't have the economics. He didn't have the cultural. He, uh, we don't really know about his spiritual connections um, or his own spiritual life. Certainly he didn't do anything physically, um, but just survive. And I wonder if 
Jesus wants me to be as up in arms as I'm sure the Pharisees were in encountering Lazarus' helplessness and my own. Let's pray. Pretty sure, Jesus, that we struggle to stay in control, to work it out, to fix it, to have advice for, and could you, uh, I don't want us to do something here, <laughs> because that's the whole point. Uh, I Could you... Help us to be helpless. And receive your, your good word in that. Your, your good news in that. Because I think somehow that is the point.